Um, I'm too busy for that. My life is too burdened for that. I'm too broken right now to think about prayer. We know instinctively there must be a problem in that if that's, if that's really at the gut level how we're responding. So what's the answer? What's the answer to a problem like that? Well, the answer to prayerlessness at Christmas is the message of Christmas itself. The answer to our, that which plagues us all, if we're honest, prayerlessness at Christmas is the message of Christmas itself. So if you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me now to Luke's Gospel. Stephen was reading in Luke chapter 1 just a little while ago about the birth of John the Baptist being foretold. As you read just a little bit further in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, you see not just that birth being foretold, but it coming, the arrival of this one that we know today as John the Baptist. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the first four Gospels, first four books of the New Testament. We are in Luke, Luke chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be really kind of unpacking together for a few minutes verses 67 to 79, but we're going to back it up just a little bit to, to get the birth itself, um, because that's what sets in motion this uh, blessing that Zechariah makes, not only of the, lo- the Lord, but also of this little boy that has just come. So, we're going to look at Luke 1, starting in verse 57 and reading on down through verse 80. Hear now the word of God. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No. He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his tongue was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray together for a moment. Thank you for this record. Thank you for this record. Thank you for recording it, preserving it. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for this season. Thank you for the celebration, for the traditions, the symbols. We pray that you would use these few minutes here in this, studying this passage, that we might grow in our understanding of the significance of the symbols and the purpose of the pageantry. That ours is indeed a great Savior. Ours is indeed a great Savior. So much so, he had a great forerunner. We pray in your name. Amen. Being clear on definitions is not just a useful thing. It can be a vital thing. Why is that? Well, we know language is fluid, right? It it can change. uh, And and, and what you mean, what one person means, can be different uh, for another person in terms of of timing and and context and such. Words can take on different meanings. Language just tends to evolve. Let me give you an example. Uh, Actually, a list of 11 examples I saw just this past week. Um, there are a lot of other ones. If you want to Google, you know, words that change time or have changed time o- over or change meaning over time, you can hit, get a lot of hits on this. Here's just 11. Awful, cheat, egregious, furniture, girl, meat, naughty, nice, pretty, sly, and terrible. This is it's really fascinating to, to, to look at this, because if you go back and you go back a few centuries, and the definitions of every one of those words that I just read, most of them, if they don't mean something very different originally, actually mean the exact opposite. Words change, and definitions are, are vital to be clear on. Uh, certainly, that's the, that's the case with, with those words, but there's another word that we need to think about, and I'm just going to introduce now a 12th candidate. We have 11. I'm going to introduce a 12th now, and the word is prayer. How do we understand prayer? Culturally, it is most often thought of as the thing of last resort, right? Like if it's bad enough, I guess that's what we've got to resort to, you know? Or it's why we use the phrase so often, well, so-and-so or such-and-such doesn't have a prayer, I mean, it's just because it's, 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 it's that far gone. It's that, it's that far gone. Culturally, that's often how we think of prayer. Biblically, we ought to understand it to be not the thing of last resort, but first resort. The thing of, of absolutely first resort. Uh, and in terms of definitions, Richard Pratt, in a book years ago, uh, Pray With Your Eyes Open, I believe is the name of the, the, is the title. Uh, a very simple definition of prayer. It's just... So helpful, so simple. A believer's communication with God. There you go. A believer's communication with God. 
Very simple definition, very straightforward, very helpful when you think about it just in those terms. Now, there's a ton to unpack in those three components, to be sure. That's why it's a book, uh, not just a, a half a page. Uh, but there's a couple other things to, to think in, in terms of not just that, that think of not just that uh, definition, but a couple clarifiers that go with that, that definition. And the clarifiers are this. First, ultimately, ultimately, prayer is always a response to God's initiative. Ultimately. Ultimately. Our prayers are ultimately always a response to God's initiative. His moving towards us first. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. We are hardwired to respond to his initiative. There are these two things going on. First, prayer ultimately is always a response to his initiative. And then secondly, we are hardwired to respond to his initiative. All that's worth thinking about, and that's about as much as I'm going to say going down that road, bringing that thread and now this thread together, here's the other thread. What in the world is any of that and all of that have to do with Christmas. I'm so glad you asked. Christmas is about just that. God's initiative. God's moving towards us. It is the celebration of the coming of Jesus, the Savior, his great salvation, and all of that is, is utterly, utterly his initiative. As we bring those threads all together, and consider God's great salvation, that will draw us into prayer. As we consider the greatness of his salvation, that will draw our hearts increasingly towards prayer. Now, what is it in this text that we're called to consider that, that might then just draw our hearts to prayer? Well, there's these three things in the the Benedictus, that's oftentimes how this is referred to because of the Latin and the translation of Zechariah's first words, blessed be the Lord. These three things help us to consider the greatness of our salvation in Jesus here at Christmas time, therein drawing our hearts into prayer. These three things, the words of Zechariah, just right there in the beginning. Secondly, the words of the prophets that he is alluding to. And then thirdly, the words, the ministry, the proclamation of this young one that he's holding at that moment, just, you know, John the Baptist. So these three parties, these three parties involved, and their involvement help us, will drive us to consider a little bit more of the greatness of God's salvation, therein drawing our hearts all the more into prayer. So let's look at Zechariah first. The, the words of Zechariah from the start, and I know all of it's Zechariah's words, but I mean just in terms of emphasis, what he is saying here uh, in verses 68 through 69, Zechariah speaks of God's favor and a work of great strength. Verses 68 and 69, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zechariah speaks here of God's visitation. His coming, just as he had in so many dramatic ways in centuries past, whether you think in terms of his visitation of his people there in Egypt in captivity, 
or in exile in Babylon. Or if you want to think in terms of individually, with women like Sarah or Hannah who were childless at the time and his visitation brought, brought those children through them. In any case, God was visiting. He was coming just as he had before and more. What Zechariah recognizes here, just as he had before and more, God was visiting his people with the arrival of Jesus, God in the flesh. God in the flesh. This visitation, and not just that, he uses this word, this terminology, this concept of redemption. And that is the purpose of this visitation, the ransoming, the rescuing of his people from bondage and enslavement, freeing them from spiritual shackles and chains. Again, just as he had before and now yet more, God was not only visiting his people, but redeeming his people through this child, God in the flesh. And these verbs that Zechariah uses here, it's worth noting. It's just like what we saw last week in the Magnificat. I don't know if you remember that, but how many times Mary, in the course of that song, that psalm, that prayer, speaks in the past tense about something that's coming. And the reason for that is, you may remember from last week, that she uses that kind of language in those tenses because on the one hand, this is something, this is what God has already, this is what he's been doing, this is how he's been working all through the course of his engagement with his people, this is what he was doing now. And in a prophetic sense, there's such a surety, a certainty of what he was about to do, she's speaking in the past tense. Well, you have something of, of that here with Zechariah. In, in the past tense, as he speaks, just, I'll just read one verse here to, to help, well, yeah, verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he is not referring there to his own son. He is referring to Jesus. This horn of salvation, what is that? Why that language? It's an image, and the people of that day would have gotten it. It was language images that were used in the Old Testament and the Psalms and the prophets all the time. The horn, the horn is, is speaking not, not of something that you, you blow as a trumpet, but the horn of an animal, likely a wild ox or perhaps a domesticated ox. But, but that would have been a weapon, the weapon of the ox, to attack or defend itself. And, and I've gladly have never had to deal with this, and I trust none of you, but if you've ever hunt, read, told, that if you've hunted a wild ox and you see one of those beasties out there on the plains and they're, you know, scraping on the ground with the hooves and nodding their head back and forth vigorously, you know they're about to attack. And you don't want to be on the wrong end of that. Those horns, those horns, a symbol of strength and, and might and power. And what Zechariah recognizes here in the coming of Jesus, the horn of salvation is a mighty Savior. The mightiest of Saviors. And again, he is not referring here to John. He is referring here to Jesus. Now, how does any of this help us, draw us into prayer? Well, Jesus, as we recognize Jesus to be our mighty Savior, it should tell us at least these two things. The first thing being, he had to come. 
And the second thing being, he has come. So he had to come. He had to come because we had sunk so low that he had to go that far. Christmas is humbling. When you consider what, what, we're, what heaven is showing us here as how bad our plight is, that this is what it's going to take to rescue, to redeem God's visitation, his redemption, his initiative, because we're not going to fix this mess on our own. In fact, we just, we've caused it and we make it worse. So it tells us that he had to come it also tells us he has come. He has come. He has come as our mighty Savior. His love, just think with me in these weeks of Advent. Know this. His love for you. His love for you is not a reluctant one. It is a zealous one. You don't passively, just kind of half-heartedly visit and redeem on the scale that we read of here. It is a zealous love. Now, as we process that and begin to contemplate that and consider that at our heart's level. That ought to stir something within us. The double message of he had to come and he has. Ought that not to fill our hearts with hope? Ought that not to steal our resolve to follow him, this one who has been so zealous to chase after us? We consider God's great salvation that can draw us into prayer, even in our busyness, even in our burdens, even in our brokenness, perhaps even especially. His great salvation. That's the first thing. The second thing has to do, it's not just the salvation is one of strength, but it is, is, has to do with a promise being kept. And, and Mary alluded to this in the Magnificat. It's interesting, you know, they, they, these, these two just can't get away from these, these realities. They're just saying it in different ways. It's landing on her and landing on him in different ways. Verses 70 through 75. Let's go back and look at it. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of his enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Let's stop there for now. Again, we, we hear this theme of a Savior, of a Savior. The, the attention now being focused not so much on, on Zechariah's words, but Zechariah is hearkening back now to the words of the prophets, the prophets of old. What was spoken is now fulfilled. What had been long promised has now been performed. And this promise 
as Zacharias reminds us of, the reader, the hearer, is not just traced back to Abraham, excuse me, not just traced back to David, shocking as that is, when you consider that's a thousand years, roughly, prior to when these words are being spoken. But now let's just push it another thousand years, roughly, to Abraham and the promise given to him, something we looked at last week in Genesis 12. Abraham, blessed by God's grace to be a blessing for God's glory. That promise is unfolding over the course of the centuries. And it's interesting to note that that it seems that the Lord so wants us to, to, to get this, that his great salvation is the fulfillment of a great promise that, that you see it coming out in these subtle ways. And, and some of the subtleties, unfortunately, are lost on us because we, we're, we're English speakers. But the names of the parties immediately involved with this point us towards the reality of promise fulfilled, promise fulfilled, promise fulfilled. Zechariah. Zechariah's name means God is remembered. Elizabeth's name means God is oath or he is the absolutely faithful one. That's mama and daddy. You got their little guy, John. His name means God is or has been gracious or merciful. So just to, to get, help us get the point, he sovereignly orchestrates the parties immediately involved to, to, to press this idea of our, this great salvation is, is the fulfillment of great promise. And even if, if we can't, Again, in English, it's hard for us to understand this and get this. But we can if you think in terms of reading poetry. And I know, I mean, it doesn't rhyme. But the Benedictus is something of a psalm, a prayer, a poem. If you remember back to your English lit classes and and the idea of chiasm and what that means is you've got themes or words here at the start and the beginning and a paragraph in or second paragraph from the end, you've got same theme. And then right in the middle, the same theme. And right dead center, you got the same theme. And it's, it's like this, I don't, know, I don't know if I'm making any sense at all. It's like, a, it's like a helix. And if I had a dry erase word, I'd draw it for you. But I don't. So you have to trust me here. But the idea being that if you look at the center of the helix, if you will, of the chiasm here in this poem, this psalm, this prayer, is right there in verses, the, halfway through verse 72 and the beginning of verse 73. And what do you see? And to remember Remember, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. That's the center of the Benedictus, the core. The core of of the whole thing is remembrance of covenant, of keeping oath. This great salvation, this great salvation is nothing less than the keeping of great, great promises, a rescue, a deliverance. Now, what was the... Um, the substance of this promise. The substance of it is the promise of deliverance, the promise of freedom. Not in the way, sadly, that we sometimes misconstrue freedom, but freedom to serve. Not freedom to be served, not to you know, strike out on our own, but freedom to, to serve, to serve the Lord is how Zechariah speaks of that. Something that the promised land, which he alludes to, and, and the people, and the nation, and the land, could only point towards, that's what it was meant to do, to point towards something greater and someone greater that was to come. Freedom, freedom to serve, freedom from sin, freedom from a tyrannized conscience, 
a greater exodus than Israel had ever known, but something that, that even that was meant to point towards. That's what the prophets promised, a rescue, a deliverance, a restoration of shalom. Again, how does this help us pray? How does this help us How does this help draw our hearts more deeply into prayer? Well, again, what is it that the prophets promised? What is it that Jesus has brought? Verses 74, 75. We being delivered. So the idea being, he has done this. He has come and has done this. What is it? We, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The Savior has come that we might then be able to serve him without fear. And yet, now think with me of all that we fear. My whole life is a theme of acting out of fear. or failing to, how about yours? And yet Jesus, we're assured here, has come to set us free. In fact, has. Which means, as we think about how uh, we are gummed up and so often in the grip of our fear of the past, we can know that we are free free from any recitation or condemnation for all that we've done or failed to do. Now, I know we recite that and bring that up all the time in our own minds, and so does the enemy, and so do some people to our left and right. I don't mean like specifically in the room. Maybe. (sighs) But I just mean we're free of that, free of our fear of the past, fear of our fear of the present, of our having to perform, or at least thinking that we do, that we have to measure up to some standard. We're free from our fear of the past, free from our fear of the present, fear of our fear of the future, of our failure that we can envision, that we anticipate, and so are, are hamstrung and unable to move because of that. We are free. Jesus has come and set us free from all of that, such fears. So again, as we consider God's great salvation coming through the manifestation of great, the fulfillment of great promise, that can draw our hearts into prayer. In fact, to the degree that we will contemplate and consider these things, it can ignite our prayer and then fuel it, taking these things to heart. One last thing, and not only is this a mighty salvation, not only is it promise kept, but there is a forerunner involved. It begins with him, uh, at least in, put it in terms of an historical context, and beginning with him, verses 76 to 79, finally, Zechariah, you get a sense it's, it's, it's as much as he is thankful for and in awe of and truly feel, knows that this is a wonderful thing, the arrival of his son. He said a whole lot already, and he's, now he's only getting to his boy because he understands 
where that boy stands in the grand scheme of things. This is not about him. This is not about John, but John has a place. And now Zechariah speaks to that. Verses 76 to 79, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Now, what is the significance of John and his mission? At least two things. The first would be the focus of his mission. I want to speak to that. And then after, right after that, the purpose of his mission. So the focus of John's mission, again, he is the forerunner, was to go before Jesus, to go before the Lord as a herald, not as in reconnaissance going before, but to prepare, to prepare the hearts and the minds of the people with the message that he would proclaim, to give, as Zechariah says here, to give knowledge of salvation, to preach and make clear the gospel, the good news of the coming of the kingdom, and explain the absolutely vital necessity of a response of faith and repentance. And you see that in the early chapters of the gospels, where we have records of John's mission, of his uh, time there doing these very, very things. That's the focus of his mission. All of that, though, was being driven by the, the, the purpose of his mission. Through John, the people would hear of salvation, a salvation that was all about, that was rooted to, connected to the forgiveness of sins that comes through. I'm just using the words here. The forgiveness of sins through the tender mercy of our God. Salvation that consists of the forgiveness of sins and that comes through the tender mercy of our God. The point being, salvation comes not through our tenacious effort, but God's tender mercy. And we need to hear that again and again and again. And the people in those days needed to hear that because those times were filled with much confusion and much Darkness. So many people of, of John's day thought that well, they, they were waiting for, looking for a completely different kind of Savior, a completely different kind of salvation. They were thinking of it in terms of only of political terms. They thought of their deepest, greatest need as being a political one, that being to get the yoke of Roman oppression, Roman rule off of them. They saw it as being an, an earthly political problem. And so what were they looking for? an earthly political savior. That's a place of much darkness and much confusion, but in a real, that those, of course, that's not to say that the Roman oppression, the rule was not a problem. It was. But that was meant to be but a pointer, a signpost, a symptom of a much greater problem, the need for a much greater savior. And John is going to make all of that clear, the need for the coming of a mightier Savior than they were anticipating. Now, by the way, this image that you see there in verses 78 and 79 is worth coming back to as well. It's so sweet. The, 
because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah is is using here the image of, of pilgrims on their way, travelers moving through a wilderness overtaken by darkness. Frightened by the sounds in the night, by the shifting of of the shadows, terrified, powerless. And then what happens? On that eastern hill, dawn awakes and light comes. Light comes, dispelling the darkness. And that's exactly what John is saying. This mighty salvation has and will do. Now again, how does that help us pray? How can grappling with these things, John's mission, the purpose, the focus, all of that, how can that draw us into prayer? Well, just think with me for a moment. Are we that, really, are we that different than the people of those times in terms of who and what we're looking for and the confusion and the darkness that that brings. And praise God that he has not changed. He is not satisfied to simply give us what we want. We often gauge our great needs by sight, by circumstances. Lord, if you would just fix that, and, and that, or this, or whatever it is, rarely if ever has anything to do with us. If you would just fix that, if you would just give me the better job, the bigger house, the better marriage, or a marriage at all, or if my kids would just get straightened out, if you would just fix X, then all would be fine. We see our our greatest need oftentimes by by physical sight through our circumstances. And that's not to say, please don't misunderstand me, it's not to say he is not concerned with those things. That's not not what I'm saying. And he can certainly move in in mighty ways to do fantastic things beyond our envisioning, imagining. But the reality is oftentimes he begins a little bit deeper than we're counting on. going down to roots. And I don't pretend to understand the intentions of God in my struggles and in your struggles. But oftentimes he will at the very least be working in the midst of those things to reveal to us our great need of him and our great weakness and how we do need this great Savior and not be turning and looking to these lesser ones, these lesser solutions, important as they may be. His is a great salvation. He is a greater Savior. As we consider those things, that can draw our hearts into prayer. It can really have a powerful drawing effect, compelling effect, a 
upon our hearts such that even in the midst of crazy Christmas, we find ourselves drawn to pray. Social media has its problems. I'm going to end with this. Social media certainly has its problems. We all know that. I'm not going to sit up here and beat that sad, sappy drum. We know it does. Um, Facebook, of course, can be used to bully. Uh, Twitter is oftentimes a place of circling sharks just waiting to move into the sin of blood. Snapchat uh, can do all kinds of damage, and and the evidence is gone within seconds. Social media has its problems. But then, on the other hand, you've got free concerts via flash mobs. Now, that can be really cool. That can be really cool. Now, now granted, again, still there, that the flash mob idea can be uh, totally misused. You know, it certainly has been used to stir up angry voters or, or perhaps even looters. And yet, at the same time, it can bring together people in a mall for pillow fights or a, a mass disco routine. Maybe that's a problem. I don't know. Uh, or or um, uh, a huge game of duck, duck, goose middle of a town square. But the greatest of them, at least from my vantage point, is uh, videos such as you can see from just a few years ago of the U.S. Air Force band playing at the National Air and Space Museum. I don't know, you can see, it doesn't take much to, to Google this. You can look at it when you get home. Um, a single cellist takes a seat. Just, just one man sits down and starts playing. Slowly surrounded by other musicians, and they're in this very public space in our nation's capital. They start playing together uh, instrumentally, Jesu, joy of man's deserving, desiring, excuse me, joy of man's desiring. That then shifts towards as vocalists all over the place who are starting to, to shed their coats, and then you see their uniforms underneath. And they're, they're around, coming in from the, where the crowds are, and up in the rafters, and they then start singing joy to the world. And the crowds that thought they were there to see uh, the X-15 or the Apollo 11 capsule or the Wright brothers' plane or whatever, you know, that, that's what they thought they were. Now they're transfixed. They're just utterly transfixed. They just stop everything. Children's jaws, even children's jaws, who at moments before just had their eyes glued to their smartphone, are now just transfixed. And the only thing smartphones are being used for at that moment are filming this wonder. What's going on there? Why, oh, why that draw? I, I don't. I, look, I understand. There's probably a lot of factors in there. I, I, I'll grant that. But surely one of them has to be the power of the message, not just the music, not just the beauty of the words and the song and the performance, but the message the message of the coming of a greater Savior. Because our hearts are hardwired for that message. And really, in essence, cannot help. We cannot help but be drawn to it. It has to be part of the reason for such a draw. My friends, again, in the midst of our crazy Christmas, the, the, the messiness of our Advent, as we consider the greatness of our salvation, our hearts can and will be drawn into prayer. May we then consider the words of Zechariah, the words of the prophets of old, and indeed even the message, the words of John himself. Let's pray together. 
Lord, yours is a great salvation, greater than we imagine, greater than our words, even the most beautiful of our carols can capture. Yours is a great salvation. Ours is a helplessness, utter helplessness. And outside of your intervention, your initiative, utter hopelessness, your promises so outstrip any experience we've ever had of faithfulness, of steadfastness, They are but glim, shadowy impressions of your faithfulness, of your steadfastness, of your promises that are sure and steady. And your intentions are so much higher, so much greater, so much better, so much deeper. Your solution, your salvation is great. Oh, we pray that you would help us this day, this week, this season to consider, to weigh, to embrace these things in ways better, greater, more fully than ever before. Draw our hearts into prayer, individually, as families, as friends, community groups, little gatherings, little pockets, plan spontaneously. May all those things draw us into prayer, into richer communion with you, where we would come to know full and sweet transparency before you and that beautiful, wondrous, transformative work that you do in such times. We pray in your name. Amen.